So our reading is John, the whole of chapter 9, and we're basing our reading on the New International Version. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with a saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. <laughs> Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. <laughs> How then were your eyes opened? The man they called Jesus um, came and made some mud and put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? I don't know. <laughs> they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, oh, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. I think he's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? Well, we know that he is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can now see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He's of age. You ask him. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you this, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. I mean, that's a bit weird, because you say you don't know where he comes from, but he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he listens to godly men who do his will. Nobody has ever heard of anyone opening the eyes of a man born blind. But if this man was not from God, he couldn't do the things that he does. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. 
Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? Tell me so I can believe. You've now seen him, and in fact, he's the one speaking with you. I believe. (laughs) Then the man said, He believed, (laughs) and he worshipped him. For judgment I've come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. There you go, it always helps to have a few recruits. And it's actually not unhealthy to realise, oh, you know, a passage like that, it's a dialogue. It's actually not uh, best done as a single reading. Um, there are multiple voices. And uh, helped that we did have um, a man and his parents in the same acting trip. <laughs> well, I don't know if uh, any of you have gotten in on the blogging game. We don't talk about blogging very much here, but I'm sure some of you must be regular bloggers. Who's a, who's a blogger? You're allowed to just, you know, show of hands. The only blogger in the whole congregation. You better, better keep the vision. <laughs> I know that it's a little bit difficult to keep. I started a blog in 2014, and it was dedicated to Old Testament, And so I called it First Three Quarters, and the idea was to just draw some attention back to the first part of the Bible and make sure people didn't forget all about it. But I did discover, and maybe you've discovered this at times, that it's challenging to maintain a blog because you don't have the accountability of, you know, fronting up to a group of people and seeing them, uh, looking at you, expecting to hear something. It's just something that you offer to the wider world. Now, maybe the target audience is a bit narrower than that, but sometimes you feel like it's just something that you're setting afloat on the seven seas and hopefully someone somewhere will get something out of it. I find motivation is a challenge sometimes. And so mine is sitting there dormant doing nothing at the moment, like many other blogs. But that's the hard thing about it, isn't it? You don't have an immediate audience. You don't get, um, well, the feedback until it develops a life of its own. And it can be hard to sustain motivation. One thing it's always worth asking about a book of the Bible or a chapter of the Bible is who was it written for? Now, we rightfully think of the Bible as the word of God, and so our first port of call can be thinking of it as written for us. And in a sense, that's really true, and I'm going to say that it's quite true of the Gospel of John. But some human being also had in mind some group of people and was addressing them with that piece of writing. Some of them would be a little surprised if you had told them at the time, you're writing the word of God, don't you know? You're writing scripture. They didn't necessarily know that they were writing scripture. First chapter of 1 Corinthians, when Paul is trying to explain that he is not the guru that they should you know, put in place of Jesus, he goes, look, I really didn't baptise very many of you at all. I baptised, and you can see he's thinking off the top of his head, you know, he's, he's, I baptised oh, the household of Stephanus, and I think there were one or two others. Besides that, I can't remember who else I baptised. I reckon if Paul knew he was writing a letter that was going to go in the Bible, he probably wouldn't have done that kind of blue sky thinking part. You know, He would have sort of trimmed it down a little bit. Um, so 
it's always worth asking, what is this particular book written for? Now, Paul's letters are kind of easy, right? They are letters to a church, and so you can do research on where that church was and what they were going through and get a sense of the situation. It's a little bit harder with the gospel, but there are some clues that the gospel of John did have a kind of an audience in mind in the early stages. Now, I think it's a very versatile gospel, and I think it's really deliberately written for a broader audience than just the first one, but I think it's helpful to think about that first audience. And so, uh, you know, Bible commentaries, they'll talk back and forth about this stuff and sometimes become too speculative, but there are some little clues. Last week I was at another church um, speaking about Jacob's Ladder and some other episodes in the life of Jacob, and there is one clear reference to Jacob's dream of the ladder between heaven and earth in the New Testament, and it happens to be in the Gospel of John. It's where Nathaniel, you know, is really impressed with who Jesus is and confesses him as the Son of God already, which is really um, a very profound confession that early in the Gospel. But Jesus says to him, you know, well, you, you think that was pretty impressive that I knew about you before we were introduced. Uh, you'll see better things than this. You'll see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a reference back to Jacob's dream, but who's going to pick that up? It's not, you know, announced that way. It's a reference, it's, a, it's an illusion, and you pick it up if you have a bit of background in the Old Testament. So the kind of people the Gospel of John is written to, originally, first time, is either people who were Jewish, Jewish Christians, proselytes to Judaism in the Greek Greco-Roman world, so people who were following Judaism because they admired this allegiance to one true God, but hadn't yet discovered Jesus, so Jewish proselytes. People around that boundary, that cultural, that religious boundary, considering the claims of Jesus as Messiah, with a foot in Judaism or two feet in Judaism, and having to make some difficult decisions. Now, uh, Christianity was born within Judaism as a movement and kind of nurtured there. But pretty soon, like a kind of a rebel son, that relationship got more and more difficult. And by about the second century, uh, Judaism and Christianity had become estranged from each other. So we're somewhere in that transition where the relationship is breaking down and they're finding it harder and harder to talk to each other. So which of the Gospels mentions this threat of being put out of the synagogue. Only the Gospel of John, right? So the Synoptic Gospels, they have their own character. They're working with each other's documents. We notice that Matthew, Mark and Luke are quite similar to each other in a lot of ways and they share content. And then you get to the Gospel of John and it's really so unique. It's really had uh, Christian readers scratch their heads over the years and go, wow, you know, A, B, C and then D is so, so unique, so different, uh, you know, uh, do they even kind of overlap? Are they about the same person? Why so different? And so one of the reasons is this audience that is being addressed and possibly that the writer knows, that John knows, uh, that the Synoptic Gospels have covered the ground of Jesus' life, ministry, death and resurrection in a certain way and that it's going to do something kind of different. So it's the only Gospel that mentions this risk of being put out of the synagogue and it mentions it three times, the first time is in this chapter. Uh, it's also the only gospel that mentions the risk of a split. 
Um, our word schism, which occasionally might be used, we don't really use it in everyday speech, but that's a Greek word. So it's out of our Greek New Testament, and it's used in the Gospel of John, it's used in this chapter once again, to talk about uh, a split within the Jewish community. So as people react to Jesus in this chapter, they're split. Some are saying, you know, the sign speaks for itself, he's got to be genuine. Some are saying, uh, no, wait a minute, you know, he's violating the law, we have access to that, we know what he should be doing. And so a schism that is already alive in Jesus' audience in the Gospel of John is something that the audience of the Gospel as a letter, they know all about that. They know about this split. They know that it's like one of those YouTube videos, you know, where a boat's at the dock and someone's just stepping off and then the boat hasn't been tethered yet and it starts to drift away. Everyone with Jewish sympathies in that culture is having to decide whether it's going to be boat or dock. Uh, and the decision is really looming for them. So... Something about the structure of the gospel then. It's a gospel of persuasion. And when you get to the end of chapter 20, it's going to say, in case you missed it, here's my purpose in writing. Uh, Jesus did many other things. I couldn't fit them all in a book. But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and believing you might have life in his name. Right? So it's a, probably the book out of all the books in the Bible that makes it the most clear what am I doing here? He just says, in case you missed it, here's what I was doing here. I was writing that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. So it's really, really clear. We're dealing with a persuasive piece of writing for people hovering between boat and dock and needing to decide their loyalties, particularly in that day between Judaism and Christianity. Now, not many of us have that kind of messianic Jewish question as a live question for us. Uh, one of two of you might have Jewish background, I don't know, but for most of us, we're pretty dyed-in-the-wool Gentiles. We don't have that particular kind of question to deal with. So it's just interesting to think about what makes the Gospel of John really relevant for us. But there's no other Gospel like John that is designed for a readership that is never going to walk the streets with Jesus, is never going to you know, walk in dusty sandals from one town to another, the writer knows the reader is in that situation. A few examples. Uh, John chapter 1, the prologue, where it talks about the light coming into the world and that most of the darkness as a whole has not received the light, has not recognised the light. Um, he'll slip in a little message there, but for those who believed him, you know, received him and did believe in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God. So straight away there, there's a consciousness of those who do choose to believe. You get to the end of chapter 12, and uh, if you read that chapter, which culminates the first big block of John, you get this sense that you, the reader, are being addressed. It's challenging you to believe. It's showing you that some of the Jews believed and some of the Jews didn't believe. Here's why, you know, prophecy from Isaiah that they'd be blind and they'd be deaf, um, but some do and some don't, and you're just being confronted with that choice. There's language that starts to address the audience there in chapter 12. When Jesus prays his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prays specifically for his disciples, and then he prays for those who will believe in their message, the second generation of Christians. We'll never see them, they'll never see us, only the, the apostolic connection will be there. There's a future generation, a future generations of Christians 
who are going to believe. And only in the Gospel of John, Jesus prays for them, for the, the distant Christians, Christians separated by generations who will never get to see Jesus in person. And likewise, who's praised for his faith but is upstaged by another group praised more for their faith? Well, Thomas. Remember, Thomas is a bit of a doubter. I'm glad that he's in there, right, in the Bible. I kind of draw some encouragement from Thomas. Thomas is convinced of who Jesus is when he's able to touch the scars and the wounds, right? John chapter 20. But the praise is reserved in that chapter for those who will not have not seen and yet believe. So I challenge you, next time you read through the Gospel of John, read looking for this perspective that it is about Jesus and all that he does, but it is for the reader who will never encounter Jesus in the flesh and will have to make their decisions about whether they believe in Jesus without that kind of tangible evidence. Right? That's where we live. That's where we have to decide. Where does the blind man in our chapter make his decisions about who Jesus is? Jesus is absent for the whole middle part of the chapter. Right? So the blind man is like us. He's been healed, so he's had an experience of Jesus. But he's still working through, who is this Jesus? How do I understand who he is? What does he mean? Uh, all of that process he has to work through with Jesus absent. So it's not just those other spots in the Gospel of John. John chapter 9 too is meant for the person who's going to have to work out who Jesus is without being able to see him. Okay? It's a Gospel for the absent decider. So one thing I didn't say is just the structure. Uh, John has a, little, has a prologue, an opening that's very philosophical about the Logos, John 1, 1 to 18. It has an appendix where Peter is forgiven, you know, and Jesus encounters his disciples on the beach. And then in between those little openings and closings, there's two big chunks. One about Jesus' ministry from John 1.19 to the end of chapter 12, and then about, you could say, his passion in traditional language, his, his suffering, you know, the last week, the passion week, the crucifixion, the resurrection. They're the two big chunks. We find ourselves in chunk one. What does chunk one consist of? Commentators have come up with a nice little um, memory aid. There are seven signs, seven miracles that draw attention to who Jesus is, mixed in with seven discourses. I was looking for a more modern word than discourse, but they're not just speeches because there's give and take, there's conversation with the audience, and they're not just conversations because, because Jesus is at the podium in those speeches. So discourses it is for now. There are seven of each and they're interwoven, and when we get to chapter nine, we're at um, sign number six. It'll be followed by discourse number six, which will be about the good shepherd, and then it'll be followed by the best of the signs, right? The culminating sign, the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. Then chapter 12, everyone's deciding what they think. Right? That's this chunk of the Gospel of John. So I actually think the healing of the blind man is the penultimate sign. I think it's the best thing Jesus does in the perspective of John, aside from raising someone from the dead. So the healing of the blind, this is not kind of a common thing. It's even rare, in, you know, uh, biblically it's rare in Jewish tradition. It's, it's not something that's kind of an everyday miracle. 
And it's interesting that in the next two chapters of John, there's a reference in each of them back to this healing of the blind man as people debate who Jesus is. So once in chapter 10, once in chapter 11, the people on the pro side say, hey, not just everyone can heal a blind man. So it resonates through the rest of this block of John. So why I've taken a fair bit of time to intro this chapter is that it actually clicked with me not that long ago. Hey, the purpose of this chapter is to take this event in Jesus' ministry and persuade you that Jesus is real. So unless I think that I can do a better job of it than John uh, in Scripture, I should probably not comment very much on it at the other end, but let it stand. But what I'll do is work through the passage and make a couple of comments along the way, just so that we know what's going on and the passage can speak with its full power. I will not comment on every verse. <laughs> now, I wonder when the disciples posed this question to Jesus, whether they actually intended to do anything about it. Like, I, you know, it's kind of like when we see, you know, someone with a guitar case open in the middle of the city or whatever. Um, one of my problems is I've never remembered, remembered to carry any money. I always feel like I should do something, but the reality is for most of us that we don't do something for every person we pass sitting on the street. So I think the disciples, when they pose this question to Jesus, they've got a good theological question raised by the prospect of a man born blind. I don't know that they, they've quite clicked to the possibility of doing something for him. I think it's a theoretical question for them. What makes any sense out of the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? That's a two-option, multiple-choice question. It only makes sense if you live in a kind of a world of karma, right? And historically, probably most of the cultures of the world, many of the cultures of the world have lived mentally in the world of karma. And that is, if something bad happens to you, you deserve it. A convenient corollary of living in a world of karma is that if something bad is happening to somebody else, you're spared from having to do anything to try and help their situation because they probably deserved it. Okay, so if any of you admire karma, just think how it kills social work. <laughs> right, because it really conveniently says to you, if, if you're wealthy, you deserve that. You should hang on to it. Don't go giving it away too much. You, you, you're there because you deserve it. And if your neighbour is poverty-stricken and suffering illness, they probably deserve that. It's called retribution theology, if you really, really wanted to know the theological term. And it conveniently tells the people who are doing well that they're not just lucky, they're actually good people and they deserve that. And they can conveniently keep all their stuff for themselves. Right? That's the downside of believing in karma. Because the disciples are stuck in that way of thinking, they can only think of two options because being born blind seems weird because you haven't had time to do any sin. So the rabbis actually talked in the rabbinic writings about whether you can sin in the womb, um, but the disciples can see the problem, right? So, all right, maybe he's being punished for his parents' sin, or, or, or did he sin and he gets, his punishment started early? What's going on there? Jesus doesn't really try and resolve this whole question in you know, one kind of passing moment, but he gets them to think outside that retribution box and he changes their focus from cause to purpose. Why might God want this man to be blind or permit him to be blind? 
because he has something special to do in his life. So he's saying that there are two, choice, two options for multiple choices, not nearly enough. There's a lot more going on. You should be asking about the purposes of God, not just in terms of immediate judgment and reward. And he says, and we have to be active, right, because this window of opportunity, this window when we can do these things, is fast narrowing. Gospel of John is full of this sense of the darkness coming. And yet, as verse 5 says, the theme that Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, won't delve into the spitting. That's Jesus' chosen method. It has commentators everywhere confused as to why. Um, that's what he does. And sends the blind man away and he came back seeing. In fact, um, probably Barry covered that fairly well last week. There's the big debate. You know, is this really the guy? He, he can't be the same guy. Um, finally, the blind man's able to, the formerly blind man's able to break through the hubbub about whether he is the guy by kind of saying, like, you know, I'm right here. I'm the guy, this is me, I'm the guy, I can solve that question for you. And so then the Pharisees have to deal with this dispute as well. They respect signs and the power of signs, so they're struggling with the fact that there seems to be a genuine sign here, and yet it's another sign done on the Sabbath, and Jesus has shown a fairly general disregard for the rules and regulations that they have understood that God wants from them. That's what they understand uh, all of their strictness, all of their kind of legalism, they understand that that's what God wants from them. All they've done is hedged about the Old Testament law with one more, you know, a, a, a bit of um, room for error. And that's the reason for their legal system, is to never again tread on God's toes and incur the exile. This is the reason for Jewish strictness about law from Jesus' day practically to now, is the memory of the loss of their nation at the Babylonian conquest. How angry God was with us, we'll never do that again. And to be sure we never do, you know, if, you, if it's a sin to beat someone with a whip 40 times, we'll make the rule 39 times in case you lose count and it'll be safe, right? We'll build a hedge around the law. So they can't work out how someone could do a miracle that seems to require God's power but seem to violate God's laws at the same time. And they go around in circles, don't they? Is this really the guy again? They go back through that question, and the parents say, he's the guy, we can say that, and now back to him. <laughs> We're not answering any more questions. They're at risk of ostracism themselves. So as almost a symbol or, or a, a forerunner of the people who are going to read this, they know what it means to be ostracised from their community. They don't want to incur that. Man born blind is challenged again. And the Pharisees, really, they're kind of trying to see where his testimony breaks down. But what's happening to the, blind, the formerly blind man as this debate goes on, he's becoming clearer and clearer about who Jesus is. So he's had his eyes healed, but he's still working out Jesus' identity. His spiritual blindness is decreasing by stages. And so each question that's addressed to him about who they think Jesus is He's taking a step of progress in the right direction. Oh, he goes, well, I guess he's a prophet. I guess that would make sense. You know, where prophets in the Old Testament did wonders. I think he's probably a prophet. Oh, well, we know that God doesn't listen to sinful people. I, I, he must be a righteous man to have had access to this kind of power. And so the conclusion of that debate in the middle is 
Uh, this is unprecedented, verse 32. No one's ever heard of someone causing a man born blind to see. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So this is his clearest yet confession, and he is telling the Pharisees how it is. So as he has progressed to seeing the spiritual light, the Pharisees have regressed and hardened up in their resistance until those who were authorised to be the teachers of the nation are now being taught by a guy who's spent 15 years you know, sitting in the gutter hoping for loose change. And they're very conscious of the humiliation involved and they're not going to cop it. Right? They are not going to let you know, riffraff from the street uh, tell them what's true about God when they've spent 30 years studying the things of God. And so they say in verse 34, you were born completely in sinfulness and yet you presume to teach us. This is the Net Bible, so it's a little bit different. Um, NIV had just born completely in sin, steeped in sin, and yet you presume to teach us and they threw him out. So what are they assuming there again? They're thinking like the disciples, right? You can tell from a person's circumstances their righteousness index. Right? So this guy's had it really tough, blind since birth, like he's bad. You can just tell from his circumstances. Such a convenient way to read people, isn't it? <laughs> it's completely wrong-headed and untrue, but it's convenient. It's a little bit like racism and things like that. You know, it's much easier to dismiss a whole people group and say that they're the problem than to go, oh, to understand this group of people, I'm going to have to get to know each one of them individually, you know, many of them individually. That's hard work. That's how you actually form real impressions about people. Oh, it's much easier to just dismiss the whole bang lot in one go and I can tell them by appearance, you know. You were completely born in sin and you presumed to teach us and they threw him out. So all of this man's approach to understanding Jesus has all been done in the absence of Jesus. So when Jesus heard, he comes back because he's going to help him seal the deal. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Has this man ever seen Jesus? He never has. So he's not quite sure who this guy standing in front of him is. Although, of course, people who are blind have excellent hearing, you know, are tuned into their hearing. And I wouldn't be surprised if he actually was already learning how to smell him, really. Um, those other senses are tuned in. But he's just working out, well, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? You've seen him and he's the one speaking with you. It seems a roundabout way to say it. I was like, it's me. Um, but this is drama, in a way. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And then Jesus said, For judgment I've come into this world, so that those who do not see may gain their sight, and those who see, the ones who see, may become blind. And the Pharisees are like, hey, wait, wait a second, how are you categorising us? And he's kind of saying it's both, you know. You are blind, but you think you see, and therefore you're all the more responsible. So Jesus encounters with people. That's the theme of this series. Jesus encounters with people in the Gospel of John, is forcing them to make a decision about him. And every time the reader sees someone run into Jesus and have to decide, he and she are being invited to make that decision too, right? We are being invited as readers to put our feet in the shoes of each person that runs into Jesus in this Gospel and decide where we stand. So that very simply is what the story is meant to do to me and to you, is to make us stop and ask, who am I most like in this story? 
in what sense do I see? Do I see in that sense of being well-educated and treated kindly by life or having maybe worked my own way up and um, I've achieved my own kind of wisdom and I've worked things out, I can work this Jesus out too. Uh, Or the other path that abandons pride and abandons maybe the hope of your own training and these things and allows the simplicity of the recognition that happened to this blind man to happen to us as well. So we too sometimes find ourselves, and it depends where you stand with Jesus, but we can find ourselves with one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock, and we do just have to decide where we stand, and that's what the Gospel of John wants us to do. A chapter like this has a potential rebuke for me, right? Someone who's spent decades studying the Bible and the things of God. If I'm not careful, I could be a Pharisee and not a healed man. But it might be a different response for each of you. How does this face you? Who are you most like? You know, some parents trying not to lose their cultural standing and their acceptance or, you know, the blind man who just simply knows, I know who I was before I met Jesus and I know who I am now. Nothing can change that testimony, that experience that I have. Or the Pharisee that's struggling with it all being a bit too hard to verify 2,000 years out. We're forced to rely on testimony. And the Gospel of John is knowing testimony. It's consciously testimony to those who can't check that Jesus really put mud on a blind man's eyes. Testimony is the link. And so in a way, we have to decide as we're faced with a chapter like John chapter 9, what are we going to do with the testimony about Jesus? So I'm just going to leave you with that chapter. I might hope that you might go home and read it once in the course of this week. It's challenging, well, a first generation struggling with Jewish Christianity, but it's challenging each of us. What are we going to do with the one who could open the eyes of the blind and finally raise the dead? I leave you to John chapter 9.